Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you guys. If you may open your Bibles with me this evening, church, we're going to be looking at the small letter of Jude. The letter of Jude, second to last book in the entire Bible. And when I have the opportunity to preach on Wednesdays, I've been going through Jude. And so that's what we're going to be going through today is Jude. And we're going to be focusing on verses 11 to 13 of Jude's letter. Verses 11 to 13. And for any note takers out there, the title of the sermon this evening is Beware of False Teachers. Beware of False Teachers. And once you find your places in your Bible, loved ones, if you may please stand up with me as we hear the public reading of Scripture in reverence. Awesome. Looks like everyone is there. We shall begin the public reading of our text this evening. And I'll be reading from the ESV as well. So this is what God's Word tells us this evening, church, through the letter of Jude, starting in verse 11. It says, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is what God's word tells us this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this grace to meet in person, Father, just to sing songs of worship for what you have done, King Jesus, on the cross. Um, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, Lord, that, God, we have life in you, and we have it abundantly, Lord. Um, we just pray that, God, as we just um, approach your word being preached, Lord, that, God, first and foremost, it will be your word going to your people, that, God, I will not mess it up in any way, because your Lord, because, Lord, your word has the power to change people, believers more into the image of your son, Jesus, and dead unbelievers to life in Christ Jesus, Lord. We just pray that, God, we will heed the warning in this part of Jude's letter, Father, about false teachers, and that we will just always contend for the truth of the gospel, and even when we do hear or face what is untrue, that, God, we will be unashamed of the the gospel, to always live a life worthy of the gospel. God, go before us this evening, Lord. Help us to, not to be hearers, but doers of your word, Father. Help us, Lord, just to be made more into the image of your Son, Jesus, Lord, so that, God, we may live more like you um, every single day until the day you return in glory to make all things new. God, we thank you again, and we lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated, church. So if you were alive on April 15th, the year 1912, you would have been, along with the rest of the world, seen a newspaper article regarding the tragic sinking of the luxury British steamship, the Titanic. So the Titanic, this ship, which was once confessed to be unsinkable, right, one night sideswiped an iceberg in the late hours of April 14th. And this not only led to the sinking of this magnificent ship a few hours later, but it led to the death of more than half of her passengers and crewmen aboard. And although the ship was given multiple warnings about the icebergs, it nonetheless encountered one. Initially covered by the slight haze of darkness, the time the lookouts of the Titanic saw it, saw the iceberg, when he reacted to it, it was already too late. The damage was done, and it would lead to, the, to its tragic end at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Therefore, I bring this up. I bring up the story of the Titanic as a parable for Christians today. But not just to avoid icebergs, right? But to avoid something far much worse. And it is a similar type of threat that if we're not on the lookout, church, that we might find our faith getting shipwrecked as well. And it is the threat of false teachers. But yet, we need to keep in mind, the greatest danger of false teachers is not that those um, who may confess a different religion, like say Islam or maybe people who may go door to door to, you know, share their cultish ideas. No. Instead, the greatest threat of false teachers lies not outside the church, but within the church. It is wolves in sheep's clothing inside the household of God that pose the greatest danger to God's people. But why? Because in the end, these false teachers, all that they teach and do is not the truth. They teach lies and sometimes even endorse sin. 
And by the time the church discovers that these are not true sheep of the good shepherd, damage has already been done. And not only is this reality true for every Christian um, throughout church history, it was especially true during the day of Jude as he was writing this letter. Because if you may recall with me, church, Jude initially wanted to write this letter to encourage house churches in Israel about their common salvation in Jesus the Messiah. But yet his plans changed, didn't they? The rise of false teachers in the middle of the first century forced Jude to change his letter plans. Look at what he says about the situation in verses 3 to 4 of his letter. He says this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in the sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude found it necessary to write this letter to exhort these churches to contend for the gospel, to fight for the gospel. Why? Because certain people, certain false teachers, slipped in unnoticed into these churches who were perverting the grace of God for sinful appetites, all done in a manner that denies the sovereign lordship of Jesus. It was these false teachers that thought that they can sin and do whatever they want without any thought that they will experience the judgment of God. And not only were they taking the grace, the mercy, the peace, and the love of God for granted, but they were ultimately expressing the rejection of his authority as master too. As a result, we have seen Jude call out these false teachers' sins in order to help these house churches in Israel to beware of them. We saw in verses 5 to 7 how Jude compares the false teachers' apostasy, the rebellion against God, with three Old Testament types of apostasy, right? And if you may recall, it was, you know, the unfaithful Israelite generation in the wilderness. He talked about fallen angels. And thirdly, he talked about those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, examples of rebellion, examples of apostasy. And we saw last time especially how these false teachers reject God's authority, like Satan, and they fail to submit to him as Lord, like Michael the archangel did. All this then, loved ones, builds up to the next section that we find ourselves tonight of Jude's letter, which is to reveal that these people are indeed false teachers. Where this may have been maybe a little bit ambiguous before, Jude is now going to reveal who these people really are here in verses 11 to 13. Because, he, if, because if he does not do this, loved ones, then the house churches of Israel may find themselves being shipwrecked as, as well. So therefore, Jude's main point in verses 11 to 13, which is my main point of the sermon tonight, is that Christians are to keep watch for false teachers. Christians are to keep watch for false teachers. But why do Christians need to keep watch for false teachers? And it's, it's with this in mind that Jude's going to warn his church with two realities Two realities on why we are to keep watch for false teachers. And so with all this in mind, loved ones, let's begin with our time tonight by looking at the first reality Jude warns us with on why we need to keep watch for false teachers. And it's this first reality, that God judges false teachers for teaching evil. God judges false teachers for teaching evil. So look at your Bibles, loved ones. At verse 11, this is what Jude writes. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And if you've been following this series so far, I know I, speech, I uh, preach very sporadically in Jude, but nonetheless, if you may recall, we have seen that Jude is using a specific strategy when he's discussing these false teachers at hand. Usually, he brings up an Old Testament reference like he does in verses 5 to 7, or maybe sometimes he might bring up a, Jewish, a story from Jewish tradition, like the one regarding when Michael and Satan were you know, arguing about Moses' body back in verse 9. And it's after Jude makes a reference like this, right, that he then immediately gives commentary on how these false teachers are the fulfillment of these types in the past. And I'm very intentional when I use the word fulfillment, because again, this expresses what Jude is doing in his letter 
Borrowing from a common Jewish way to interpret Scripture in his day, he is implementing within his letter something known as typology. Typology. And if you don't know what typology is, you can just think of typology like foreshadowing in the Bible, but yet with a prophetic emphasis. And what I mean by that is that when Jude is referring to these Old Testament examples, these Old Testament types, he is then comparing them to the false teachers of his day. But why is he doing that? Because the rebellion and judgment of these sinners in the past points to the false teachers in Jude's day as rebellious sinners who will experience God's judgment too. And this fulfills prophecy then because it points to the horrible reality that one day these false teachers as well will be judged eternally forever and ever in the eternal flames of the lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing their teeth forever. This is why Jude has been alluding to their judgment throughout the letter up until this point. And it becomes all the more clear when we consider the first phrase of our passage tonight, loved ones. And this is the first phrase we need to consider. It's the phrase, woe to them. And this phrase is very significant because this announcement of woe is a pronouncement of judgment. And Jude is pronouncing judgment to who? To them. But who are these people? Well, in the letter, this is a reference to the false teachers. But yet, up until this point, he never mentions the false teachers by name because he doesn't even consider worthy of them being mentioned by name. So instead, he just calls them as those people, these people, right? And this idea of woe, then, is not one of maybe conveying a curse or expressing some sort of misfortune, like, oh, woe is me, right? That's not really what Jude's emphasizing here. Instead, Jude is taking this from what is called a woe oracle, which was borrowed from the Old Testament prophets. And so an Old Testament woe oracle, it's really a type of judgment speech that the prophets would use themselves to address Israel's sins when they were rebelling against God, which would lead inevitably to their judgment. In other words, when a prophet pronounced woe upon someone, it is really an expression of pity over the one who was under the judgment of God. And so in our passage tonight, Jude has really taken up the mantle of a prophet then to pronounce judgment upon these people as false teachers. Why? Well, he's going to give us three reasons in the rest of verse 11. But before I go further, though, I think what will be most helpful to understand this and to really see the effect that Jude is getting at here, I want you all to picture with me at least this next part that this is really a courtroom scene, right? We've all seen, you know, various you know, you know, courtroom scenes, you know, whether on the news or, you know, favorite TV shows, whatever. I want us to really visualize a courtroom scene here. And the defendants here on trial are going to be these people, these false teachers. Who's going to be the judge? It's going to be God. And who's the lawyer bringing the case against these false teachers? Well, it's going to be Jude himself. What is Jude's case? Well, they are false teachers and they deserve God's judgment. But how will he prove that they are guilty of being false teachers worthy of God's judgment? Well, Jude's going to call three witnesses from the past. And so with this picture in mind, loved ones, let's hear the first witness testify. So if you look at your Bibles, church, at verse 11, this is what the first witness testifies. He says, for they walked in the way of Cain. So Jude calls upon this first witness, Cain, right? who says that these people walked as he walked. But yet, who is Cain? Who is this individual? Well, if we turn to the earlier parts of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, this is after Adam and Eve are cast out of God's presence in Eden because of their sinning against God. They eventually give birth to two children, right? Many children, but their first two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, he was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer, Whereas his brother Abel, he was a keeper of sheep or a shepherd. But yet, many of us maybe know the story. There was a day when both brothers were bringing a sacrifice to God, right? Abel brings um, one of his firstborn of his flock with its fat to God. Whereas Cain, on the other hand, he brings some vegetables, right? And as a result, God accepts Abel's offering, but he refuses Cain's. Why? Well, we find an answer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so where Abel's saving faith led him to bring the right sacrifice to God, which was a blood sacrifice, Cain expresses, really, his lack of faith by bringing an improper sacrifice to God. As a result, Cain becomes angry and his countenance drops. And God confronts him about this in Genesis 4, 6-7, 6, saying, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But we know the story. Instead of killing sin, sin kills Cain when he killed his brother Abel. As Genesis 4.8 says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and Abel killed him. But wait! Order in the court! Is Jude then accusing these false teachers that they were committing murder, like Cain towards his brother? On the surface, there's not any hint of murderous behavior in Jude's letter, but yet we do find a hint within a verb that he uses, and it's the verb, they walked in his way. They walked in his way. And this is a phrase that was used in Hebrew to illustrate someone really following the moral example of someone else. And so with that in mind, how were these false teachers then following the moral example of Cain? Well, it's very important then here to know that sin, it's never just a mere physical action because it always stems to the deeper root of the issue, that of the human heart, right? This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 20-22, particularly about anger and murder, he says this, You have heard that it was said of those to old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Murder here then, Jesus says, begins in the heart. Murder begins in the heart then when someone becomes so sinfully angry with another person. And this inward thought is as if it has become outwardly, right? That's how serious sin is. God's not just concerned with the physical parts of our sins, right? It all starts in the heart. And, it's, and, and, and it all manifests itself, right? Ultimately, when the anger of the heart then manifests itself physically. And to better understand this idea, we find another hint from Jude's brother, actually, from the book of James. This is what James says in his first chapter of his letter. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, what it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Once temptation comes into the heart, loved ones, sinful desire gets lured and hooked by, like a fish by the bait of temptation, and the result, it conceives sin and eventually leads to death. This is what happened to Cain. Since his sin began with murder in the heart, instigated by this jealous anger against his brother, his hatred towards his brother led him to kill him. This is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.12 that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Jealous anger. Instead of being marked with loving righteousness like Abel, Cain is then marked with evil hatred instead. And it is in this way that the false teachers imitate Cain then. Since Cain was marked with hate, leading him to live in sin, it is to no surprise that he then taught others to do the same as well, right? If you just read the rest of Genesis 4 and see Cain's family history, it becomes awfully clear that these were not, you know, saints, right? They were horrible people. And it is to no surprise as well that even Jewish tradition says that Cain... He was really the archetype of what a sinful, false teacher really looks like. And so with all this in mind, Jude's first, first witness, Cain, 
He testifies that these accused false teachers have followed his immoral example of hating others instead of loving them. And this leads to a life of sin, which, which inevitably influences others as well. But yet, before we are quick, right, to judge these false teachers as guilty or move to the next witness, we've got to take a look at our own hearts, though, right? Let me ask you guys this question. This is for myself as well. Do we imitate our holy, trying God in Christ-likeness perfectly? Do we strive daily to imitate him by loving him and others daily? Is it your life's mission to glorify him and to enjoy him forever in all that you do? Or are you marked instead by that worthless man of hate, Cain? He was devoid of love. Are you devoid of love, loved ones, in your heart for others or for God? Is there any grudge that you have that you're holding against a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Whatever may may be the case, right, church, we are nonetheless to forgive others, especially because we have been forgiven. Because if not, then Christ says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 that we will not be forgiven of our sins either. So loved ones, do not be marked by the hate of Cain. Instead, allow your lives to be marked by the love of Christ. And this happens when we remind ourselves of how God first loved us. And how did he do this? Well, what does Paul say in Romans 5.8? He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's when we were still sinners that God sent his only begotten son to die for us. That he, because he so loved the world that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life in him. If God, who was far more offended by sin than sinful humanity could ever could, and was still willing to forgive us through the cross of Christ, how much more are we called loved ones to forgive and show love to others as well? Brothers and sisters, love one another as Christ first loved you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, as one Puritan writer put it. Because if not, not only will we never experience life in Christ, but we will instead experience that hatred of Cain, which inevitably leads to death. And this reality becomes all the more important when Jude calls his next witness to the scene to testify against these false teachers. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, in verse 11 again. This is what the second witness testifies. He says, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And so where we saw how these false teachers are indicted by sinful hatred of Cain, we now move to a more ominous example of scum and villainy. Balaam the villain, right? But who is Balaam? Who is this witness? Well, again, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And we're going to go to Numbers 22 to 24. We're going to see a man, Balaam, the son of Beor, who was actually a seer hired by the king of Moab, King Balak, to curse the nation of Israel as they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. But yet, instead of cursing Israel, God only permits him to bless Israel. And although Balaam could only do what God told him to do, there are still hints in this part of scripture that he was actually greedy for gain. He was greedy for money. As the Apostle Peter indicates about false teachers that he was dealing with, this is what he says about Balaam's greediness in 2 Peter 2.15-16. He says, Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. The speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So God rebuked Balaam's love for money through his donkey. And if you don't know that story, go check it out. It's very interesting. But in light of this, how did Balaam gain from wrongdoing? What did he do exactly? Well, immediately after Balaam blesses Israel, we see in Numbers chapter 25 that the men of Israel, they sinfully have relations with the Moab from Moab at a place called Peor. And as a result, they were led to worship their false gods, which led to them being judged by God. And if you were to read this passage, Balaam is not mentioned at all, right? Yeah, it's not until a little bit later, in Numbers 31, 16, that Moses says something about this incident that is very important. He says, Behold, these, which is the woman of Moab, he says, These, on Balaam's advice, 
caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam, he was the one responsible to telling the Moabites to send their woman to Israel to cause them to stumble into sexual sin and ultimately idolatry. And again, Jewish tradition links all this to Balaam desiring, or that he did this because he desired gain from wrongdoing. He desired to gain at the expense of leading others to sin. Therefore, Jude's second witness, Balaam, testifies that these accused false teachers abandoned themselves to the error of his ways by gaining profit at the expense of others. And this verb, abandoned themselves, in the Greek, it has the idea of really giving themselves up or really pouring themselves over to Balaam's ways. In other words, these false teachers in Jude's day, they were all in their immorality. And it is really to no coincidence that as Balaam met Israel to sin in sexual sin, that these false teachers as well, they're marked by sensual desires as well. We see that throughout the letter everywhere. But yet again, before we reach a guilty verdict, we got to look at ourselves one more time, right, church? Because I'm not sure where everyone is at in their spiritual journey. By grace, we're at different levels of maturity. There may be even some unbelievers here now. And if that's the case, maybe if you're listening online, I then exhort you, for the sake of your soul, to keep listening to God's words this evening. Because not only are they for you, unbeliever, but it is the only words that can lead you to true rest and joy in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But church, maybe we are not as outwardly wicked in the sense of leading others to sin for the sake of personal gain like Balaam. Like, oh, I'm not that bad like Balaam, right? But yet, I believe that there is always the danger of imitating Balaam in our hearts, which is probably a much more closer reality that we like to admit, right, church? Although we are saints, saved by grace in Christ through faith in him, we are still sinners at the same time, being conformed to his image by one degree into another. As a result, the presence of sin still lies in our hearts. We also have the capability to not only sin, but to lead others to sin as stumbling blocks. How so, you may be asking? Well, one danger, I believe, is that, when, that this could happen is that when we uphold our Christian liberties at the expense of others. For example, maybe one might say, eh, I'm not tempted to drink alcohol, so I'm just going to go drink, right? And although the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to drink, right? It's, it's only a sin to get drunk, but yet how much of a stumbling block are you if you were to still do so even when a believer's around and you know they struggle with, alcohol, with drunkenness, right? That would be so unloving. That would be horrible. Or another example, say if you like to go watch movies, movies are great, right? But say if you went to go see a movie that maybe had a sketchy scene, like a, maybe a sexually explicit scene. As Christians, we should always guard our eyes from this type of stuff, right? We should never seek such garbage. But say, but just say for example, hypothetically, you saw this movie and it didn't bother you, right? Would you go still watch that movie at the expense of a fellow brother or sister who struggled with lust? Again, it would be unloving. It would be selfish. But maybe you don't struggle with that, right? Like, ah, I don't have a problem with abusing my Christian liberties, John. But yet, maybe do you use others for selfish gain, like Balaam? Think about it. Do we in any way abuse others of their time, their resources, maybe their spiritual gifts, all for the sake of our personal agendas? Or maybe you abuse God, maybe using him like some genie in a bottle to get what you want instead, instead of submitting to what he desires from us through his word. All I'm saying, loved ones, is that because sin still lies in our hearts, we all have the capacity to not only sin, but to at times, God forbid, be a stumbling block to others. We cannot allow this to happen. We cannot be stumbling block to others, to the world, or even use others for the sake of personal gain. As Christ first served others, we are to do the same. Instead of being concerned with ourselves all the time, we ought to imitate our master by being concerned for our fellow brothers and sisters first. How can I pray for them? How can I serve you? How can I love you? Because it's only when we're filled with such love for others, which is rooted in Christ, that we will be able to avoid the error of Balaam, the deceitfulness of sin. This is what the writer of Hebrews 3, 12 to 14 says. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Loved ones, be on guard from the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another from such dangers. Entrust yourselves to the living hope we have in our great high priest, Jesus. We have our confidence found not in our own strength and our own abilities, but in his sacrifice alone that he made on our behalf on that rugged cross. Rest in his love for you to allow his love to bleed out into all your relationships. He is the keeper of our salvation, keeping us till the very end. Because if we do not take care to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin, it will creep at our doors, the doors of our hearts, and kill us like Cain. It will lead us to sinful error like Balaam. And the danger is that if we will not find ourselves at the end in the hands of a merciful Savior, but the danger is we may find ourselves in the hands of an angry judge. With all this in mind, we were then led to consider the last witness in Jude's courtroom case against these accused false teachers. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, one more time in verse 11. This is what the third and final witness says. He says they perished in Korah's rebellion. So were these accused false teachers have so far been indicted with the hatred of Cain and the selfish gain of Balaam? We now move to the final witness. And if you've noticed, each witness has really increased in intensity. Where the first was marked by hate and the second marked by selfish gain at the expense of others, the last witness, he expresses what happens when people ultimately live a life of rebellious sin. And it is the witness of a man named Korah. And this verb here, perished, it clearly captures the idea of judgment here. And because this verb in the Greek it communicates that their judgment is so sure that it is as if already happened, right? But also notice something else. The order of these three witnesses, right? Because I can tell you, it is not in chronological order. Because if that was the case, it would have been Cain first, Korah, then Balaam. But instead, Jude swaps Korah after Balaam. Why does he do that? Is that significant? Yes, it is, because again, Jude is presenting these three witnesses with such increased intensity of their moral decline that the result of living a life of rebellious sin results in the judgment of God forever, in hell forever. And the one Old Testament story that best captures such judgment is that of the rebellion of Korah, which is recorded in number 16. So let's set the stage here for this last witness. We need to read the first three verses of Numbers chapter 16. This is what Moses writes, church. He says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram and sons of Eliab, and On the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, Moses, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So we see here that for Korah, who was part of the same priestly clan of Moses and Aaron, he stirs up this rebellion of 250 Israelite leaders, right? Quite a pack, alongside other Reubenite men like Dathan, Abiram, and On. But what was the issue, though? Why were they doing this? Well, later in number 16, it indicates that Korah, he absolutely rejected the idea of the priesthood belonging to Aaron's descendants alone. And for the Reubenites, that's why they joined this rebellion, they didn't like Moses as leader because they didn't, he didn't bring him into the promised land. So they had problems, right? They had some beef. But yet, Korah only verbalized his complaints, right? Maybe for us as Western hearers, like, oh, that's kind of harsh, John. Why, why would you label this as rebellion? Well, we need to understand something that in the Near Eastern world, culturally, contradicting the leader or questioning his legitimacy was considered rebellion. It may even been an open challenge to claim his position as the chief, as the leader. 
As a result, the rebellion of Korah can be summarized not only against Moses' authority as the leader of Israel, but ultimately against the one who put him in that place of authority, God himself. And this is significant because the accused false teachers in Jude's situation may have been rejecting the teaching of the early church as well, explaining why they deny Jesus Christ as their master and Lord. And this would also explain why Jude's whole purpose in writing this letter is that these churches in Israel would fight for the gospel in light of these false teachers. So with all this in mind, the conclusion regarding Korah's rebellion against Moses and ultimately God is recorded at the end of Numbers 16. This is what Moses says in verses 31 to 35. He says, And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, that's Moses, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 offering, the incense. And so it's this scene then, in response to failing to submit to Moses' leadership, which was really a rejection of God's authority, everyone involved in Kor's insurrection was judged by being sent straight into Sheol, which is also known as Hades. Likewise, these accused false teachers in Jude's situation would be judged just in the same way because of their sinful rebellion against God. And what is significant of all these three witnesses that we have seen, right, is that not only did all of them teach or did evil, but at the end, they were inevitably punished. For example, Cain was banished after he killed his brother in Genesis 4.12. Balaam was killed in battle by Israel in Numbers 31.8. And as we just saw with Korah, he was sent straight to hell because of his rebellion. And since Jude's court case against him is prophetic by nature, their sinful behavior will inevitably lead him to experience the divine and eternal judgment in, in hell forever. As it happened to these rebels in the past, it will happen to these false teachers in the future. These people, as accused by Jude as false teachers, they have gone and hate the way of Cain. They have given themselves up to Balaam's selfish gain, and they have rebelled against God's authority like that insurrectionist Korah. As a result, what is their verdict? Guilty. And the punishment of their crime is the eternal flames of judgment in hell forever. So as we contemplate all that we have heard from these testimonies of these three witnesses, let this all be a two-fold warning for us, loved ones. First, we must always take care that we never imitate these witnesses in their sinful rebellion against God in any way. We cannot be marked by hate in any way. Do not be marked by selfism. We cannot be marked by our pride. We cannot be marked by sin, and even worse of all, to lead others to sin as well. Because every false teacher in history, in the history of the church, has either been marked by one, by one or all three of these Old Testament examples. Therefore, do not imitate them. For we, loved ones, are commanded to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are called to wage the good warfare against sin only by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. We are called to preach the good news to those, of, those dying around us daily without Christ. We are called to defend the good name of our triune God against those belittling his name. We are called to not imitate what is evil in any way, but we are called to imitate what is good. That's the first warning. And secondly, we are to watch out for these people who have these marks. We are to watch out. Because although they will be judged accordingly, they can still do great damage to our faith. And, and most importantly, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with all this in mind, we have seen that Jude mentioned the first reality of why we need to keep watch for false teachers. That God judges false teachers for teaching evil. We now arrive at the second and final reality of why we are to keep watch for false teachers. And it's this, loved ones. They disguise themselves as God's people. False teachers disguise themselves as God's people. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, at verses 12 to 13. This is what Jude writes here. 
He says that these are hidden wreaths at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Where Jude in the previous scene, right, this courtroom scenario, condemns the false teachers with judgment by referring to these Old Testament witnesses, we now turn to verses 12 to 13, which he then offers further commentary on their true colors as false teachers, on how they are wolves and sheep's clothing. And it is here then, loved ones, that he raises a really stirring reality at the beginning of verse 12 about this. Look at your Bibles one more time, where Jude says this, He says that these false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And as we're going to see throughout verses 12 to 13, Jude is going to utilize five metaphors, five metaphors to describe the nature of these false teachers. Who are they like? And he begins with the first one by saying they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. But in order to understand this phrase, right, We need to understand, what does Jude mean by love feast? What is a love feast? Well, contextually, this is the only time the New Testament references of what the early church would have known or called it as an agape meal, an agape feast, or a love feast. What is an agape meal? Well, an agape meal or a love feast was a common meal eaten by our early brothers and sisters, the early Christians, right, in connection with their worship on Sundays for the purpose of fostering and expressing mutual affection towards one another. And so not only was this then really a fellowship meal, right, like, like, a, like a big potluck, but it was accompanied, most importantly, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And the ultimate focus then of this meal was not necessarily to remember what Christ has done, which is true, or even our current victory over sin in him. No, the true ultimate focus, as the Didache mentions, which was an early church manual, it, it, it says that the expression or the main focus is that it was to focus on the unity created and the eschatological community of Jesus' followers. The focus was unity in Christ, loved ones. That's why our early, um, our early church family um, did these meals, to remember that, to grow together in unity in Christ. And for example, to really is, illustrate this importance of unity, Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 22 in this passage, he actually rebukes the Corinthian believers about their disunity. Why? Well, he had this situation of rich believers. They were treating this, the agape meal. He doesn't mention it by name, but that's what he's most, um, most likely referring to, that they were treating this agape meal as really a party to get drunk and be gluttons. And the time the poor believers would show up to this agape meal, which which who would be out late all day working to make ends meet, they would miss it on the meal entirely. Therefore, Paul has to correct them. He's like, guys, you're taking this, you're taking this meal, taking the Lord's Supper to be united as God's people in Christ. That's what Jude means when he mentions love feasts here in our passage tonight. It was the fellowship meal that believers took to express their unity as God's redeemed people. And this unity was, again, continually renewed when they took the Lord's Supper together. Because it is when believers, loved ones, it is when we take the bread, which represents Christ's broken body for a sheep, and the wine or grape juice in certain contexts, right, that represented his blood shed for his people, that he was crushed by the wrath of God so that his people, that we as his people, may live and have life in him. It is this ordinance along with baptism, that Christ commanded us as his church to do so that we can remember him by. Not only in how he died in the past, and nor the victory that we have in him presently over sin, but of the joy that one day we will eat of this meal when he returns to make all things new at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But yet, it was during this meal, during this wonderful feast of unity of the church of God, that these false teachers slipped in like hidden reefs as partakers of it. And this leads us to the first metaphor then of how Jude describes these false teachers, calls them hidden reefs. But what does he mean by hidden reefs? Well, this word in the Greek, it can really mean a rock, but found along the coast. And think of this picture with me then. 
since rocks found along the coast. What Judah's really getting at is think of sailors, right? Sailing along the coast and you got all these rocks and stuff. They had to be careful of maybe a hidden reef hidden under the water or maybe rocks protruding on top of the water, right? Because if they were not careful in avoiding them, then they can hit it and their ship would get shipwrecked. As a result, these false teachers are just like these hidden rocks within these house churches that Judah's writing to. How exactly? Well, he says quite exactly in verse 12 by saying, They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And I have to admit that this phrase that I just read, it's really hard to understand in the Greek, without fear, right? And the only reason why I mention that, because in many of our English translations, it says, you know, they feast with you without fear, right? And if that is the meaning that we should take, then it would mean that these false teachers partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner as unbelievers without any fear of God's judgment. Now, I believe that they were taken of the Lord's Supper, not, not caring at all, but yet... Many scholars believe that this verb or adverb without fear, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be modifying the feast without, they feast with you without fear. Instead, it should be modifying shepherds feeding themselves, right? The next phrase. And so how would that read? It should read something like this. Shepherds fearlessly feeding themselves. And now to some of you, be like, John, that's not really a big difference at all, right? It seems insignificant. But yet, the picture that Judah is portraying here is all the more important because with this slight distinction, it's really highlighting just the immoral behavior of these false teachers. Because for one, the fact that he calls these false teachers shepherds communicates the idea that they had some pastoral role in these house churches. Some of them were leaders. And yet, instead of taking care of the sheep as God commands his pastors, they were taking care of themselves. And this, is, this, is, this wasn't an accidental oversight. Oh, I forgot to visit you or I forgot to do this for you to take care of your needs. No, that's why some scholars think shepherds fearlessly feeding themselves because if that is the way we should understand this, they were doing so without any bit of concern for the sheep. Like Cain, they hated the sheep. Like Balaam, they only served themselves at the expense of the sheep, fleecing the flock. And like Korah, they don't even care or regard the authority of the good shepherd, Jesus. Horrible, right? And as a result, it's with this imagery in mind then, the strong imagery, that he's actually alluding to an earlier prophecy back in the book of Ezekiel. And here in Ezekiel chapter 34 particularly, we see that Ezekiel the prophet, in his day, he was condemning Israel's leaders because they were also neglecting the sheep. They weren't shepherding God's people. So with that in mind, this is what Ezekiel says in light of this in Ezekiel 34, 1-3. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat? You clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. It's these leaders in the days of Ezekiel who failed to feed and protect the sheep that they were actually feeding and protecting themselves. And they did so at the expense of the sheep, their fellow Israelites, God's people. Likewise, when Jude mentions this, the false teachers were also eating and feeding themselves at the expense of Christians. And as a result of this prophecy in Ezekiel, this is what, Jew, this is what um, Ezekiel says in light of these leaders of Israel in verses 9 to 10. He says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall they, the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not eat them for food anymore. Because the leaders of Israel in the days of Ezekiel failed to shepherd God's people who would be judged accordingly, the same fate would await these false teachers in Jude's day as well. But yet, before we move on now to the rest of these metaphors of how Jude describes the false teachers, this is a rich promise that we need to remind ourselves at the end of Ezekiel 34.10. And it's when God says, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they, that they might not eat them for food. And we cannot help but wonder, of, well, how did God accomplish this? 
Well, ultimately, as Scripture says, it would be carried out by the good shepherd. But not only the good shepherd who fed and protected the sheep, but the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And this good shepherd is none other than our risen Lord King Jesus. Hear what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10, verses 9 to 11. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For false teachers, especially in Jude's day, only came to steal, kill, and destroy according to their own sinful and selfish passions, Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep. Why? So that all who would believe in him as Lord and Savior would be saved. Christ, as the good shepherd, knows all the sheep he is to save, and the sheep who are to be saved by him will hear his voice. As Jesus continues to say in John 10, 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Loved ones, we are known by our great shepherd. He has given us life abundantly in him. Thank him for that. He will always take care of our needs. He has done spiritually of our greatest one, right? We never have to to worry about being abused by him because he saved us from our abusive slave master of sin. We never have to worry about not being fed or protected by him. He is the word of life that satisfies our spiritual hunger and is the very keeper of our salvation. Where false teachers will will feed themselves fearlessly, our good shepherd will feed his sheep relentlessly. And this is possible because Jesus laid down his life for us as his sheep on that cross. Therefore, loved ones, rest completely in the good shepherd. Find your comfort, find your contentment, your strength, your joy, your hope in the good shepherd. It is his rod that corrects us to stay on the path of life. And it is his staff that guides us to everlasting life. No matter the anxieties that you may be going through right now, loved ones, maybe fears, sins, trials you may find yourselves in, loved ones, rest in Christ as our good shepherd, for he so loved us by laying down his life for us. And yet I am curious about these words of Christ as well, when he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And the reason why this is curious, right, because I wonder if there's any lost sheep here, right, who are yet to be found. There's always a chance an unbeliever might stumble, maybe listen to the sermon. And if there's anyone here that you know that you have not bowed your knee and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I then plead with you to do so now. Because if you're hearing the great voice of the great shepherd telling you to turn from your sinful ways, which leads to death, and find life in him, don't ignore it. Do not neglect it. Because it is only in Jesus, as Christians we have experienced this by grace, but it's only in Jesus that in him will you only find rest for your souls. Why? Because he became sin. Who knew no sin, he was perfect, so that you may find eternal life in him. It is through his perfect work on the cross that if you confess of your sins and believe in him, you will be healed of all your rebellion against God. Where every person, including myself, all of humanity, deserves nothing but the eternal judgment of God in hell forever because of sin, you can be forgiven of all your sins because Christ died in your place. In exchange, you are a born-again creature made to glorify and enjoy God forever. So do not go on this day in your sins, for judgment will come. Place your faith in Jesus alone, because he alone is the name under heaven that saves. Amen. These false teachers, shepherds who fearlessly feed themselves then, they will experience this judgment. And this becomes all the more clear when we briefly consider again these last four descriptions of their character. So look at verses 12 to 13 one more time, loved ones. This is what Jude says about these teachers that they're waterless clouds, swept along by winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. 
wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So the first metaphor then, Jude says that these false teachers are like waterless clouds, swept along by winds. Well, what does that mean, right? Well, think about false teachers. They have a lot to say, a lot to promise, right? But yet in the end, it's all empty talk. Why? Because they're only filled with lies. Just like clouds, right? You know, clouds that look promising. Oh, they're going to deliver rain. But then winds comes and it takes them away, right? That's the reality we all know too well here in the desert, right? Like, oh, sweet rainstorm's coming, right? Then boom, those winds, those infinite high desert winds start picking up. And boom, those clouds are swept away, right? Something that seemed promising is then swept away. That's what these false teachers are like. They're like empty promises being swept away by the error of their own way. And this is then accompanied by another metaphor, that they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. And what this picture illustrates is that in Israel, um, where the harvest of, of a tree's fruit would have been collected at the, late, at the late end of autumn, the picture here of dead trees communicates that, that what seems promising yet yields empty fruit. That's what these false teachers produce. What seems promising, they only produce empty, dead fruit. And they are twice dead because they will not only die physically in sin, but they will experience the second death in hell spiritually. As a result, there will be a day when Christ uproots them to only be thrown into the eternal flames forever. This then leads us to the third metaphor, that Jude calls these false teachers wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. And when you just think of waves for a moment, right, say at the beach or at the ocean, Wild waves of the sea are known to be unstable, right? They're crazy, choppy. That's what these false teachers are like. They're unstable in all their sinful ways. And although they try to look good, right, they only produce shameful, sinful deeds. Kind of like when waves just produce all sorts of junk on the shore, right? This all culminates within what Jude says at the end of verse 13 about these false teachers. He calls them wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And this imagery of wandering stars is actually a reference back to Jude 6 of when Jude was talking about fallen angels. And it is clear that Jude is heavily influenced by a Jewish work known as First Enoch, which in that book often labels fallen angels as wandering stars. That's what he's comparing these false teachers to. Why? Because as these fallen angels were judged in the past because of their sinful rebellion, these false teachers will be judged in the same way as well. Because of sinful rebellion, both are whom the gloom of utter darkness which has been reserved forever for both of these individuals. Therefore, we began our night, right, with Jude beginning with a pronouncement of judgment on these false teachers in verse 11. He then ends in verse 13 with the reality that they will be judged in gloomy darkness in God's judgment of hell forever. And the reason, again, is because they have sinfully rebelled against him. They may appear as Christians, right? They may appear, appear nice, you know, they're, they're cool. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And once they are seen for who they are, as we just saw, dangerous rocks, selfish shepherds, useless clouds, dead trees, wild ways producing shame, wandering stars, they will be seen for who they really are, those of whom the gloom of utter darkness, which has been reserved for forever. Therefore, with all that we have seen and heard tonight, church, beware of false teachers. They have been judged for teaching evil amongst God's people. They are haters like Cain. They are selfish for gain like Balaam and rebels like Korah. And not only do they live in sin, but they teach others to do the same as well. They may disguise themselves as God's people as well. Although there are hidden wreaths in Christian churches waiting to shipwreck the faith, you now know what they look like. They are empty promises, like empty clouds swept away. They only produce dead fruit, which spews forth sin. And their judgment is something that will come to pass. As a result, then, it's then appropriate that we finish by considering the words of Jesus himself, of what he has to say about false teachers. This is what he says in Matthew seven fifteen and 20. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Church, beware of false teachers. Although they may look like Christians, you will know them by their fruit. So don't follow their example. Stay in the word. Read it daily. Stay in prayer. Depend upon God in it. Surround yourselves with fellow Christians who love sound doctrine, and most importantly, who live sound doctrine. It is only when, we, only when we surround ourselves with the truth that we're able to hear something that is not true. Heresy, false teaching, right? Contend for the faith and bear fruits worthy of repentance so that we may experience everlasting rest in the Good Shepherd who has life in himself abundantly. Because it is only when we rest in him that we will avoid shipwrecking our faith. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, church. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this night, God. Thank you, Lord, for the grace to hear your word preached, Father. I just pray that, God, that just going through this passage in Jude, Lord, that we all now know a little bit better